I went back and forth this week uh, as to which story I would tell in this Tales from the Tower. Originally, uh, I had wanted a, a good mix of stories between firsthand accounts, personal experiences, and some of the kind of folkloric ghost stories that I've collected on my travels. But there was a lot of activity in the shop this week, and a lot of people had actually come to visit us for one specific artifact that we have in the shop, um, a little doll named Alice. Haunted dolls seem to have really taken hold of the general public's uh, fancy, and uh, people are very interested in in dolls right now. Um, but I decided to go back to my original story because I thought the story was really um, a good example of how complex the study of the paranormal is and how it's not just uh, ghost stories and spooky stories and horror stories and that it's not just uh, this dark side of human nature, but that it is actually just human nature. And, um, and I think those stories are, or can be some of the most impressive and illuminating stories. Some stories stick with you longer than others. Some affect you more deeply some reveal to you a new world or a new way of viewing your world. And those are the best, the ones that expand your view and people your imagination with new characters. Better still, when those characters are real people and that world exists and surrounds you and you can touch it. In 2013, I visited Mexico. It was not my first time, but it was my first time to visit Riviera Maya. Despite the fact that I live in the Jersey Shore, the northernmost part of it, still, and I frequently visit beach towns, I myself am not a sun person. My favorite time to visit the beach is in the dead of winter, in the middle of the night. Still, I do love Mexico, at least the Mexico that I have seen. It's beautiful. The landscapes are diverse and the history is deep and rich. My trip to Riviera Maya actually resulted in two ghost stories. One is a little too fresh and a little too tender and a little too personal right now to share. The other, however, has rapidly become my favorite. I'm not one for a relaxing vacation. I need the places that I visit to have a certain grit, something I can latch onto, something that makes me say, oh, hey, now that's interesting. Don't get me wrong, I love good food and good drink, and Mexico has a ton of both, but resorts just don't do it for me. It's not always the wisest decision to explore on your own, but it is often the most illuminating. My first day in Mexico, we visited a recently discovered ruin in the forest outside of Tulum. There was a series of sacred cenotes and a large structure. Now, this structure was completely overgrown. It was about 40 feet in height, and I have to say, it was very impressive. There was a certain weird, untouched quality to it, almost surreal because it was just there. It wasn't protected. There was no fence around it. It was so real. And we don't always get to experience real. The next day I visited Tulum. Now Tulum is an amazing site with an incredibly well-preserved ruin. Our guide was very knowledgeable. He was proud of the history and the preservation and its place in his personal heritage. Visiting a place like Tulum cannot help but inspire further reading. 
further exploration. And I determined almost immediately that the next day I would drive to one of the seven wonders of the modern world, Chichen Itza, a world heritage site. My drive to and from Chichen Itza is worthy of its own podcast and was frightening in an entirely different way. But I will save that and stick to the ghostly and historical rather than the cultural and social for now. Suffice it to say that I was far too casual and arrogant and should have paid better heed to where I was. One of the first things you notice when you arrive in Chichen Itza is that this site is different from others. As I mentioned, it's a World Heritage Site, and it is treated with the respect commiserate with that station. It lacks the overt commodification one sees in other places. There's no real gift shop, but there's a movement toward that. And as so many people come on tours and pilgrimages in a way, there are merchants who set up their wares on the walkways from the entrance to the actual city. You can get a drink, an ice cream, colorful woven blankets, although most of which appear to have been machine-made, maracas, carved objects, and you can even have your photo taken with a frisky little monkey who will steal your hat if you don't pay attention. Trust me. There's an immediate reaction to this, at least from me, that it's somehow distasteful or disrespectful. However, on greater reflection, I've changed my mind about that. After all, Chichen Itza was a city, a place of commerce, and there would have been people on the road selling their wares 500, 600, 700 years ago as well. There's nothing sacrilegious about merchandise. Provided that the areas that are sacred remain sacred, I don't have a problem with it. And Chichen Itza does a good job of that. Once inside the site proper, the first thing that strikes you is its size. This was a truly massive city for its time. The structures that remain are well cared for and large. One can see where people congregated, sold their wares, conducted business, and of course, worshipped. We have a tendency to be awestruck by the ceremonies of the past, by the rituals of people that maybe we don't directly descend from, people we see as exotic, because our worldview is almost uniformly Eurocentric. Hey, I'm not judging. I do exactly the same thing. And yet when one views the Christian mass from the outside, it is as steeped in mysticism as any ceremony in any age or in any place. We're not so very different from each other, regardless of the year or the place. But we often highlight our differences or ignore them entirely instead of acknowledging and accepting them. But wait, I promise no social commentary. So let's get back to the past. The Great Ball Field is amazing, as is the description of what took place on it. No mere sport, the game was life or death, with the pride and honor of the players as well as his clan, city, tribe, and family at stake. We often use warlike terms to describe contemporary sports events, yet Maya sports were literally combat. They were about bravery and skill, and they had wide-ranging impact. The ball court is impressive. The walls surrounding it have carved skulls of inordinate detail and beauty. But the focal point of any visit to Chichen Itza, one might say, is undoubtedly the temple. A massive Maya pyramid in the center of the site. An amazing feat of engineering, it is possible to stand near the center of the pyramid and whisper and be heard a football field away. The temple of Kukulkan, as it is called, is a testament to the advanced architectural and astronomical knowledge possessed by the Maya people. On the spring and autumn equinox, 
At about 3 p.m., the miracle of the feathered serpent is visible to onlookers. As the sun hits the balustrade to the west of the main staircase, and as it moves through the sky, it casts a shadow that appears to be a certain sliding its way down the side of the pyramid. Now, the precision is astonishing, and the effect is off-putting. And one must remember that at that temple, people lost their lives. Part of the ritual and part of the ceremony of their religious faith was human sacrifice. Beyond the impressive nature of the ruin, for despite being remarkably intact, it is, in ru- it is a ruin, the scale of the city is breathtaking. But it does require some insight to truly appreciate the structures, their purpose, and ultimately to really flesh out what life was like in the city. As you walk through the city, you learn that this was an advanced civilization with a thriving economy and an interest in the natural sciences as well as a deep religious faith. The Maya people, particularly those who came to Chichen Itza to participate in the games, did not actually fear death. To them, it was a passage to another world that was part of the life that you had. In other words, life continued on the other side much as it was here. Because of that, the demands of the gods for sacrifice were seen as opportunity to prove one faith and courage. And to be chosen for sacrifice was an honor. I'm sure that the individuals who were chosen had fear and that they struggled with this fate. But as a society, the sacrifice were viewed as honored and noble people called to do a prestigious duty. Of all the sacred sites in Chichen Itza, none was more sacred than the cenote. Cenote are sacred wells, believed by the Maya people to be entryways to another realm, a realm of the gods. Sacrifices were made in these large natural wells, sacrifices of objects and sacrifices of people. And the largest and most famous in the Maya world was here. People flocked to Chichen Itza for their faith, for their pride, for their product, and of course, for art and knowledge. Like any great city, Chichen Itza was a center of learning. In the center of the great city, by the temple and the 1,000 columns that delineated the great market, one can imagine all manner of communal events taking place. But one has to ask, where did the people live? And that was the question that struck me. As we wandered and I spoke with our guide, Fernando, he pointed out that while many people would have visited the city, only the elites would have actually lived within the city proper. These, he pointed out, lived just off the center of the site. We walked there and we found what appeared to be another smaller city set within the center. And it had exactly the same buildings on a smaller scale. It was thought, he said, that this was the first city built. And when they had perfected their techniques, they moved to the larger site and created the major city around the little city. The elites, the powerful merchants and the heads of families, moved into the buildings of the little cities that had one time been offices or other structures. And even a smaller temple remained for the use of the rich families. But one building stayed as its original purpose and was not rebuilt. It was this building that became the center of the story that stays with me. My guide was very learned and very passionate about the site and subject. He stressed that the site was a part of his heritage and that it was continually yielding new information and that he felt a responsibility to keep learning and keep interpreting the new information that came from it. As we finished our lengthy tour, which was excellent despite some language issues, I asked the question that I always ask. 
are there spirits here? People react differently to this question. Some smirk and laugh. Some look at me quizzically. Some evade. But generally, everyone reacts. He did not. At least not right away. At first, I thought he didn't understand what I had asked. After all, we had spent a good three to four hours going over some fairly complex historical and archaeological data, and my question may have seemed like it came out of nowhere. No, he didn't smirk. He didn't smile. He simply paused for a moment, and then he said, Yes, there are spirits here. Rather than broadly telling me of the shadows and figures that people report, and make no mistake about it, you cannot walk through this site without imagining the people that lived here. It would be shocking if people did not report shadows flitting about. The very nature of the site, the design, the intent, the purpose, concerned shadows being manipulated for supernatural effect, so people could be forgiven for imagining such things. But he didn't talk about that. Instead, he said... Come with me again, and motioned for us to walk back toward the older city. Here we came to the observatory. Now, the observatory is less intact than many of the buildings that the tourists flock to, but it is impressive nonetheless. Obviously a building of great architectural engineering, it was also a building that had a dedicated use. It was not ceremonial. Learned men would while away their lives monitoring the heavens, making specific judgments based on the stars and their alignments. Much knowledge was gained and recorded here. Many decisions from the sailing of ships to the planting of crops would have been made here. The building is preserved and it is still being worked on even now. As he was explaining this to me, his speech quickened as he warmed to his subject. Many universities send their best students here, he said. This site is so important and the opportunity is so rare to work on such a place. This I could well imagine and envy the students lucky enough to be chosen. I said as much, but he continued, while we can see what remains, we still do not always know how it once was. We must make assumptions, even when we don't believe that that is what we are doing. Having spent several years in both academia and corporate America, I truly understood his point. The city was in ruins for centuries, falling down. It was forgotten. The world grew and changed around it, and then rediscovered it. And this new world, this larger world, this changed world, wanted the secret of the old one. And in order to find them, it was decided to put these pieces back together. The assumption was, of course, that we knew where those pieces might go. People have reported shadows, especially in this building, he said, because science has always held mysticism. Even in the days of Chichen Itza's power, the learned men were considered magical in ways because they understood the secrets of the universe, or so it seemed. These men, it was thought, may have stayed behind or may have lost their chance to move on to the other world. Their shadows flitting and flickering and frightening children who heard the tales of them. But stories told to children by men and women who took a shortcut through an abandoned city is one thing. University archaeologists finding their work halted is something else entirely. And that's what happened. When the site engineers and the World Heritage Planners decided that the best course of action was to rebuild a wall that had collapsed within the observatory, they thought the best thing that they could do was bring in archaeology and engineering students 
so that the site could be rebuilt in much the same way it had been originally built. They used the same resources, the same stones. These they found right at the base of the wall. The wall had crumbled in a peculiar and strange way, almost as if it had been punched out like a window, large enough for a man to step through and actually quite convenient as a space between two rooms. In fact, the opening made sense in a way for the original use of this space, but clearly the wall had existed because there it was in ruins. And so they began. They painstakingly chose the stones that would be used. They had to fit properly back into the wall. They recreated the same mortar that would have been used by the ancients. It was backbreaking labor, bent over, checking the minutia of stone and clay. The first day they returned to their camp exhausted, but happy with the first day's work. They had learned so much. The work had become easier as the day wore on, and they could imagine that the wall would be finished in a week's time or so. It gets very hot in Chichen Itza, and as one might imagine, there are no trees to shade a building designated as the observatory. So the day started necessarily early, even before the sun was up, which was good, because the students could then see the sunrise and where it was visible from the building, giving further insight to the use of the building and the life of the people who had used it. When they arrived the second morning, raring to go, they found all of their hard work had become unraveled in the night. It was undone. The wall had collapsed again. Disappointed but still motivated, they thought that perhaps the fault was their technique, and they took it even slower on day two, carefully fitting each stone together, holding them steady in the heat. And when they finished that day, there was slightly less done than the day before, but this time they were sure the wall was sturdy and that they had learned a lesson in patience. Back they went to camp to discuss the day, eat, drink, and no doubt make a little merry. Day three found them again perplexed in the dark moments before dawn, for once again the work of the day before lay in heaps and the opening was as large as it had been before they started. Was it the mortar? Perhaps. And they elicited the help of a local mason who understood the properties of the resources they were using to help them mix it. Perhaps it was too moist or too dry, too brittle. He came and he checked it and said it was fine and it should work well. And so they again began to rebuild the wall. This time they added more hands to the work, thinking that perhaps if they got more done, the overall weight or size of the job would ensure that it stayed upright. That third day they stayed later and left only after the sun had set. Some of them felt a touch uncomfortable in the evening. It felt as if the halls were waiting for them to leave. It probably comes as no surprise to you, dear listener, that the fourth day brought even greater disappointment. For when they arrived, the wall was down, and this time the stones were scattered afar. The students and the teacher were at a loss. Finally, they went to their guide and interpreter and asked if perhaps animals might be doing this. Were there animals large enough living at the site that could break down a wall? He shrugged and looked uncomfortable, saying, No, it is not an animal. Was it locals then, angry at them for working on the site? No, he said again, this time looking away from them. Is it vandals? Children? Teenagers? No, no, no. Who then could it be? 
None of them were ready for the answer that they received, and yet all of them felt the chill of truth as he offered his answer. The spirits are angry with you. Universities generally pack a first aid kit, perhaps a dictionary for translation, but few give students or faculty the resources to handle angry spirits. To the credit of the course faculty member, he did not scoff at this, but instead asked how they could rectify the situation. The translator could only offer a suggestion that they reach out to a local holy man, which they did. That night, the holy man stayed in the observatory, the whole night through after everyone had left, and he was waiting for the students when they arrived. He was tired and quiet, and he was happy that the night was over, for even though it was part of his duty to commune with spirits, it was not common, and it was always exhausting and stressful. Yes, he said, they are angry. One in particular is very angry. This spirit said that the wall was not theirs and was not supposed to be there. He said that the spirits had knocked it years ago when others had come and built it and that they would knock it always because it blocked them from the parts of their observatory that they needed to do their work. Also, they were angry that no one had asked the permission to work on the site. The holy man had made amends and had apologized and had told the spirits that the students wanted only to make the building as it was. And the spirits had told him that a wall had never been there and that another wall, which was still standing on the lower level, was also never originally there, but had been put up many years ago. They rarely used the lower level, and so it bothered them less, but it should also be removed if they wanted the observatory to be as it was. The stones, he was told, that they used to build the wall had come from an external wall on the ground level, and that had been present in their lifetime and had been used to divide areas for living. The students took all this in. They decided to respect the wishes of the spirits and leave the wall down. Subsequent studies have indicated that, in fact, the wall was not part of the original structure, nor was the one below it but that it had been installed in some later date, probably in the 20th century, for some unknown purpose. Many believe just because someone thought that a wall should be there. And yet, it's interesting. It's interesting that these spirits remain, that these astronomers and priests, that these learned men of centuries ago, who spent their lives looking into the stars and into the night skies, searching for the answers to the questions of our universe, continue to do so. They have not found their answer in death. They continue to seek the answers in the skies of this world. There's something human about that. Certainly not frightening. Certainly not tragic. And yet, there's something terribly haunting about it. 